Welcome to an NJ Spotlight Roundtable program. This program is the future of Medicaid in New Jersey. This is the second of two podcasts in this program series. In this podcast, we'll hear the second panel, Focus on Maternity Health. The panelists are Robin DeOria, Chief Executive Officer of the Central New Jersey Family Health Consortium, Linda Schwimmer, President and CEO of New Jersey Healthcare Quality Institute, Susan Spernall, the Clinical Director of Obstetric Services at Monmouth Medical Center, Colleen Nelson, Vice President of Children's and Family Health Institute and the Visiting Nurse Association Health Group, and Nicole Lamborn, MD, Program Director for Women's Health at Virtua Health System. Moderating the panel is Lilo Staten, the healthcare writer for NJ Spotlight. This program is brought to you by AARP of New Jersey and participating sponsors Aetna, Horizon New Jersey Health, the New Jersey Healthcare Quality Institute, RWJ Barnabas Health, and United Healthcare. And now to the panel, here's Lilo Stanton. Thank you. There's, uh, I'm very glad to have this panel. I, I think, um, you know, if this was all white men, it might be a problem, but since we're women, I guess we can get away with it. Um, but, you know, we are talking about maternal health. So, um, and why are we talking about maternal health? Um, this was a question, originally I had sort of misunderstood the statistics and thought that maternity care was eating up 40% of Medicaid. Um, that actually is not, that's just plain false. Um, it, but it does pay for 42% of the births in New Jersey, which is a significant chunk of births. Um, and when I've talked to, to Linda a little bit about this in the, in the past, and, and um, I think the cost to Medicaid is around $700 million a year. Um, but her point was that's, you're sort of missing the point if we only talk about how little it costs. Because the real issue is the opportunity. Um, and when we start to talk about how New Jersey is doing, um, we're not doing as well as we could in this area. And it becomes an area where you have huge opportunity for both better quality of care and savings. Um, just looking at maternal deaths in the US, uh, I don't know exactly how New Jersey stacks up here, but you know, per 100,000 live births, um, we have 26.4 maternal deaths in the US. That's been rising over the past 15 years. Most other Western countries have declined during that period. Um, the next closest is 9.2 per 100,000, that's the United Kingdom. Um, we also have issues in this country with infant, uh, low birth outcomes, which we end up, and what those really mean are, we're talking about infant death, that's obviously a bad outcome. Uh, birth, low birth weights, prenatal care, issues about reducing uh, parental, prenatal air, alcohol use, increasing breastfeeding, these are issues that, that relate to birth outcomes. Um, we are making, uh, progress in some of these areas, but not as well in others. Um, and one area that seems to be particularly troublesome in New Jersey is the high rate of C-sections. Um, in the US, now one out of every three births is a C-section. Why does this matter? And that's increased 50% since the 90s. Um, it's two or three times higher than the World Health Recommendation. I think it's probably higher than other recommendations, then even higher than some other recommendations. Um, 
But this is a problem for a variety of reasons. First of all, you're talking about a major surgery versus a non-surgical procedure, generally. Um, and it's also, it impacts future births. Women who have a C-section are then more likely or almost definitely going to deliver future babies through a C-section. And there are significant potentials for complications. Um, it's more costly, and it's often unnecessary. So we're going to look at those problems and drill down a little bit on what that looks like uh, for the folks who treat uh, patients and, and women and children in New Jersey, uh, particularly Medicaid patients. Um, and we have an excellent panel here. Um, Linda Schwimmer from the Quality Institute, as it's now known, the just QI, um, is the president and CEO of the Quality Institute. Uh, Dr. Nicole Lamborn is a is the program director for women's health at Virtua. Uh, Colleen Nelson is the vice president for Children and Family Health Institute at the Visiting Asso Nurse Association Health Group, and they run FQHCs and other programs. Uh, Sorry, Robin Dioria, getting blind. Uh, she is a nurse and chief executive officer of the Central New Jersey Family Health Consortium. They, the family health consortiums play a huge role in maternal health in New Jersey. And last but not least, Suzanne Spurnell, 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 Spurnell a nurse uh, and clinical director of obstetric services at Monmouth Medical Center, which is uh, Robert Wood Johnson Barnabas uh, facility. Um, so first, I thought I'd start with Linda, and um, we have some data that we're going to start with and talk about where New Jersey is on sort of the state of the state of maternity care in New Jersey now. And we have lots of new fancy data from the Department of Health. Um, so Linda, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about um, what we're looking at, and if you can see it. Um, <laughs> well... Or what we should be looking at. Sure, I can't. I can't really see it well, but I, I read it before, so I'll 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 summarize. But then you guys can look around the room, and then you can also go on the New Jersey Department of Health Shad website. Um, and and I do want to really uh, recognize the fact that um, the Department of Health, within the last year or so, has come a long way in terms of taking data and displaying it in a, in a very actionable, um, accessible way, which is great. Uh, we, would like to, we would like to see more of that, and we would like to see that specifically uh, with Medicaid. Um, uh, I, I think the last panel talked about that a lot, but, but having data and then knowing what further actions we can take and where to go and what the variation is um, is really powerful, and that's one of the things that we recommended um, that we have more of in the Medicaid 2.0 blueprint. And um, I think this is just one example of when you do have the data and you can put it up there and talk about it in a room with policymakers and payers and healthcare providers and, and others, um, you can really drive change. So, all right, so I can't see this, but basically this is a directional chart showing you that if it's red and it's going to the left, that's a very bad thing. It means not only are we not improving, we're actually getting worse. And so is that the prenatal care that we're getting worse? Yes, so prenatal care in the first trimester, um, we're actually we're going in the wrong direction, which is, which is scary because we all know how important it is um, to have that prenatal care. 
and I'm going to leave it to the to the clinicians on the panel to talk about um, both uh, the the types of care that that that's needed. Um, I'll stick on that slide for one sec. Um, but that that's obviously wrong direction. We have done better when it comes to smoking and and alcohol uh, use uh, or addressing not you know stopping that usage in pregnancy, which is great. Um, we are low birth weight is still a big issue in New Jersey. We're stagnant on that, and that when it comes to birth outcomes, uh, both from a quality of life and then um, having a higher likelihood of children that then have um, learning delays and developmental disabilities and costs and NICU costs, et cetera. Um, that's a huge issue for us. Um, and the bottom, what is that bottom one? The bottom one we're doing better on, whatever that is. Oh, breastfeeding. But that's, I think, you know, that's interesting though. When you drill down and you look at that, I think it's like at, like at least once or something. So. I mean, just to take that for what that is. But I think that um, what's not on that side, and maybe we can go to C-sections for, let's see what else is, be a mystery to see what, yeah, okay, so C-sections. So this is new information because when we released the blueprint back in February, one of the questions, I think it was Sue Livio from the ledger asked, or maybe it was you, Lilo, somebody asked, how do the C-section rates compare between the Medicaid population and the rest of the payer population? And so this is the answer, which we didn't have before. So we're glad that we have it now because it's important to know. Um, so you can see where C-section rates were back in 1997 when I had my first child to where they are today. And for both populations, they're, they're unfortunately in the wrong direction. They've increased dramatically, as Lilo said. Um, Medicaid has traditionally been better when it comes to uh, C-sex, slightly better, um, but unfortunately now, you know, Medicaid is actually ticked up in the same way as the rest of the population, and we're still at about 30%, as Lilo mentioned. Um, Leap, the LeapFrog group uh, uh, recommends that um, C-section rates uh, for low-risk is uh, 23.9, so we still have a way to go. And most of the hospitals in New Jersey, even though they're working towards that, uh, many of them are, are not there yet. Um, want to do the next one, Rachel? Uh, yeah, birth weights, low birth weights. Okay, so, so these next couple charts really just show variation by county across the states. And again, I think this is actionable information for healthcare providers and health plans and others working in the community. Um, the blue and the green are better and the light orange and orange are, are worse. You know, the light orange is the worst and it just basically four different quadrants showing uh, based on the birth data, uh, birth record data that's reported by the hospitals um, where, uh, where the state is and so where there's significant uh, ability or need for, for improvement and opportunity. So when we think about budget and we think about if we had an Office of Healthcare Transformation and they were creating a statewide plan for the state of New Jersey on how we organized healthcare delivery and how we spent our money, I mean, those are areas that, that need significant on-the-ground help um, in terms of getting out there and having education and support services and getting moms enrolled and, and uh, you know, basically having healthier pregnancies and reducing those numbers. The next 
So that's even worse, right? Okay. <laughs> oh, so prenatal care, right, right. So this is, again, the, the, the need for prenatal care where we're going in the wrong direction. And again, those states that are lighter orange, like right here in Mercer County, um, obviously are, you know, are, are having some of the worst statistics on that. And then one more. Okay, that's it. All right. Thank you. Um, Dr. Lamborn, tell us a little bit about, well, first of all, why these things matter sort of clinically. I mean, what's the impact on the child and the family? And, and we'll get the bigger impacts as well. But tell us why this stuff matters. Well, we know directly um, prenatal care impacts outcomes for babies. So the length of the pregnancy, preterm delivery rates, preterm um, births, and, and low birth weight. So the earlier we can get patients into prenatal care, the better the overall outcome. And, and what that means to babies is can be lifelong um, health problems, lifelong learning disabilities, and significant impact to the family and community at large. So the earlier we can intervene and make differences in these moms' lives makes a lifelong difference to the baby. And tell us, <clears throat> excuse me, about the, the, some of the patients that you treat, because Virtua is largely in the south, and or entirely in the south of New Jersey. Um, and it, it, some of those slides looked like those were some of the, the counties that were having, were struggling with these statistics. What, what are you seeing? In, in, particularly in Medicaid population treat. Um, yes, Virtua is in South Jersey. We're one of the largest health systems in South Jersey. We do close to 8,000 deliveries between Burlington and Camden County, and we are not performing well, um, as you see there. A lot of it is, in my opinion, access. <laughs> That's a different code than I'm used to hearing. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but... Um, so, you know, a lot of it is access to care and getting these women into care early. So you saw the rates of um, first trimester access to care, and some of it is being afraid that they're not eligible, some of it is not knowing, some of them is unaware of their own pregnancies or the impact of early intervention into their pregnancies and the overall outcomes. Um, a lot of these women are young moms um, who have a lot of stressors in their life. So when you talk about Medicaid population, you are talking about restricted um, transportation a lot of the times. You're talking about restricted family care, so other children in the home can really impact their ability to get to their appointments. And even if they know they're high risk, they don't know how to get to where they need to be. Do you, uh, uh, Suzanne, do you want to tell us a little bit about um, sorry, what you're seeing in Monmouth? Um, I'm curious if the population there you're treating is different. I mean. Obviously, you're a slightly different part of the clinical service delivery, but tell us, tell us what you're seeing. So it's not at Mammoth specifically. It's not so different than what's at Virtua. Um, our patient population, um, we have a large Medicaid population. We have a lot of patients that struggle with the same things that you were speaking to. Um, getting into care access is huge um, because Mammoth Medical doesn't just serve Monmouth County, we serve um, Ocean County as well, parts of Ocean County. So it's getting patients medical transportation if they need to see a specialist. And, and that's really, really hard for some of these women because it's not just getting to where they need to be, it's they have other children at home. There's a lot of social determinants of health that affect 
impact women getting into care and the kind of care that they're receiving. The other thing um, that we're seeing that's really changed over the past 10 years, especially in this population, is the complexity of the patient. So it's not the way it was 25 years ago where women um, didn't have other health problems while they were pregnant. Um, the patients we're seeing now are coming in with uncontrolled diabetes, um, chronic hypertension, obesity. Obesity has become a national epidemic and it's really affecting outcomes in pregnancy. Um, behavioral health is huge. Well, just back up for a second, the obesity. What's the, just clinically, what's the, what's the connection? I mean, what's the issue with childbirth? And obesity? Yeah. O ob with obesity, you often develop comorbidities in pregnancy. Diabetes, huge. Hypertension is another um, big factor. A lot of times you see obese women with low birth weight um, babies because they end up having preterm labor. Um, so the obesity alone puts you at risk for... Absolutely, right. absolutely. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, 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 that's fine. <laughs> uh, behavioral health is a huge issue. It's, it's kind of like the white elephant in the room. And I think there's lots of opportunity in New Jersey to make this better for our patients. Um, opioid addiction. Everyone focuses on the non-pregnant population, but um, I'm sure that you're seeing the way we are. Uh, lots of moms coming in struggling with opioid addiction and there's nowhere to get them help. And then tag on the fact that they have Medicaid or a restricted Medicaid and you've really, really limited um, what we can do for these patients and these babies. That's an interest. We should talk about uh, babies born addicted as well. Um, Robin, let me let me ask you a little bit. I was struck by um, what you said, Dr. Lambert, about how patients are coming in and not sure they're eligible. So the suggestion there is they're not insured, right? So they don't, they come to they're they're pregnant. They come for their first prenatal care, and they, it's not even a question of do you have a doctor? It's you don't have insurance, right? How do you how do you is that something you're seeing? And how do you kind of deal with that sort of helping get people ready for health care, if you will, and ready for this deliver, this big thing that they're about to do? Well, we do, <laughs> and I think, and I'll pass the baton to my colleague in a second because I think Colleen sees it even more so because she's in direct service. As a community agency, we do have a number of programs that have what I would call connector type of people, community health workers specifically, that actually work in the field and work in the community and to the point where one-on-one, -on -one, whether it be in a nail shop, in a barber shop, in a beauty salon, talking to women about prenatal care, about how to connect to services so that we can get them earlier in their pregnancy so that there is not that disconnect and we're seeing them months and months later and at times with no prenatal care at all showing up and being ready for delivery, which we know women without any prenatal care, it's even worse than having just a short period of time. So most of our programs have at least some mechanism in them to be able to connect to women on the street, literally, as well as then connecting them to other programs, whether we administer them or other agencies like the VNA, who in turn, through a variety of home visiting programs, amongst other services, can make that connection. 
Yeah, Colleen, why don't you tell us, and, and home visiting services for pregnant women? Tell us yeah, um, the, at the VNA, um, a lot of times with our VNA health group, we've got a whole home care and hospice that most people know us by, but actually over our 100 year history, we do a lot with community-based programs. And um, one of the home visitation programs, I'm gonna age myself, but I started uh, one back in 1996. So um, these programs in New Jersey started back then when they recognized that we needed handholders between the medical system and the community folks that were really needing this care and accessing this, particularly our Medicaid population. And especially when you're, um, no one has touched upon it, but language. Uh, language is huge. When you're talking about prenatal care, there are folks from other countries that really just don't understand what is prenatal care. Why, why do I need to do that? And, you know, can't I just, you know, show up somewhere in the emergency room and deliver that baby? So there's a lot of education around in these community handholders, as I'll call them. Um, and one of the programs is Nurse Family Partnership that is a home visitation program. And what these programs are for this particular model, it's got nurses that visit the homes. They visit moms from the time that they're pregnant early on until the baby reaches age two. So it's a long-term relationship. And in one of them, they stay until the baby reaches age three. So when you're talking about changing outcomes, these programs are amazing. And, uh, you know, they, they do have the their return on investment for you know investing in these programs. And, and I just think that more expansion um, could be great. Medicaid to pay for them for sustainability. I work in the grant world. So um, for the climate that we're in right now, um, I just basically don't sleep anymore. Just not so sure who's, who's going to have a job on tomorrow and who's going to continue doing this work. Um, thank you. I think uh, somebody uh, mentioned something here that I think we, we should have touched on at the beginning, and that is that all of these statistics um, are averages. Um, and what they don't reflect, unless you go down farther into the charts, and, and I'm not sure they're reflected in these details, um, is the disparities between different racial groups. Um, and I mean, I, I just know this from a little bit of the data, but I'm always shocked. In, in New Jersey, just generally speaking, not just maternal care, but Oftentimes, New Jersey is doing better than other states in these metrics, but we tend to have wider disparities. And it's kind of shocking to me that in a state where we are so progressive and so, I mean, generally in our policies and so forward thinking um, and generally inclusive that we still have such a disparity. But Linda, let me ask you a little bit about that. What, what are just some of the, the numbers that you're seeing there and, and any thoughts on that? And then I want to ask some of the clinicians about that too. Right. Well. I, I, I agree with the premise, and I mean, I look at something like Mercer, and I know that um, for the community health needs assessment, actually the Trenton Health team did its community health needs assessment separately from the rest of Mercer County because they knew that when you're looking at it on a county basis, throwing West Windsor and Princeton in there, for example, is just going to completely mask the significant needs of Trenton. So looking at Mercer County on all of these charts being, you know, really, uh, you know, the, in the lowest quartile, um, if, you took, if you took Princeton and West Windsor out, it's only going to get worse. I mean, I think it's, it's been shown in study after study, um, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has done a lot of research on this, when you, when you put up the economic disparity, I mean, that really generally tells the story more than anything else. So, I agree. The problem and the challenges, and it goes back to the discussion of the first panel, um, we don't have enough access to data in the state that can be used by all of us to do this 
planning and work. And, and that's why um, some of the other states, uh, South Carolina in particular, in particular when you can get down to a community level or a zip coded level um, of aggregate data, you were still not talking about personal health information, but just aggregated data, um, we can do a lot better job of zeroing in on where the, where the needs are. I mean, otherwise I'm speculating. But. Nicole, do you, I'm sorry, Dr. Lance, okay. calling everybody else their first name. Nicole, um, tell me what, how does this, what do you see when you're treating these patients? That's what I was going to say, just on the day-to-day -day clinical yeah. level. I think we have to be more relatable as clinicians and we have to speak their language. So we have to understand where they're coming from and really understand the stressors that they're going through. And I, I said that a little bit before, but um, I think there's this feeling of detachment from the patient. So when we're trying to get education across, we're trying to get the patient to realize what they need to do for themselves, there's a separation that happens that they feel that we're not really speaking to them on their level in terms of what they need. And to really understand, we can say you need to go see nutrition, you need to see high-risk um, specialist, you need a pediatric appointment, but they're hearing, okay, I have this to do, I don't have transportation, I have to pick up my other child, I have to be home for the bus. Um, yeah, that sounds great in your world, but in my world, that's not reality. And we have to realize what they're hearing and, and really help them on that ground level. Just telling somebody this is a good thing for you and your baby is not enough to get them to that, yeah, obviously. Right, and I'm really trying to help them understand what the, the long-term impact is, like why it matters today in terms of, you know, it, we have to live in the moment for them in terms of if you don't do this now, what the end result's gonna be for this baby. And we're not always clear on that. And I think many providers, just say, you need to do this because I said so, kind of the parental role, instead of really relating to them and helping them understand why it's important. Um, just to tag along on that, there was one story of a, a young woman that called us for the Nurse Family Partnership Program, and she, uh, she said to me that, uh, she told the nurse that she wanted her to paint, if she wasn't gonna paint her basement, that there was no way that she really wanted her in this home and could participate in our program. And I know the nurse looked at me and said, you know, painting her basement, I can't do that. I said, look beyond her words, what is she really asking you? She's asking you that she's fearful of bringing her baby home to an environment that's really not safe. And the, you know, starting with this paint in the basement. So it, again, they're looking for the value. What, do you, what can you bring to me? Why is this meaningful to me? And in that instance, you know, the nurse did not commit to painting her basement, but she did commit to be able to coming out. And you know, she stayed that two and a half years. It was a wonderful client. You just sometimes have to get through those words. That's not really what the client is saying. I'm not sure if this is who this could answer this question, but how do you finance something like that? How do you pay for that kind of? Yeah, for the funding for the um, Nurse Family Partnership is, uh, these are grant funds and they're coming from uh, Department of Children and Families. And then a couple of years back, we actually were uh, getting uh, maternal, infant, early childhood home visitation pro program money, federal monies that are passed through through the state to be able to. We ramped it up from uh, home visitation. It was serving about 4,000. Now we serve about 7,000 families. But that's throughout the state of New Jersey, and that's just a drop in the bucket. So um, funding is, is always huge. We've got a lot of private philanthropic work the VNA does to support these programs. Even though we get dollars from the state, it's never enough to be able to cover all of the services. They cover pretty much the staff and, you know, the, that really kind of bring out the program and a few, you know, major key supplies that we would need. But really, it's a lot of work on philanthropic 
trying to get those dollars to make it whole. And it takes an, you know, an investment by your, your board, your, your leadership to really believe in these programs. That's how we do it. Um, so I want to speak to that a little bit because a lot of these things that send, we sort of end with the, oh, it sounds good, but where could we find the money? And um, it's not like we're not already spending a lot of money on maternity care and just health care in general in New Jersey. We are. I mean, I think you heard it today. With $16, 15000000000 billion, it's a lot of money. Ten of that's going to the, to the health plan. So it's a lot of state and federal money. Um, and we're just not we're just not really rationalizing it. I mean, we are spending a lot of money uh, on the NICU when we would rather have healthier babies and healthier moms. We're spending more money on C-sections that don't need to happen when we would rather have vaginal births, which will then be vaginal births for the next baby, most likely. Um, so it's really about really just reallocating those dollars and so how do you how do you get to that um, and that's really the work that the quality institute is doing with uh, pretty much everyone here on the stage <laughs> um, uh, and and this is the work that the Nicholson Foundation is funding through the Medicaid 2.0 project is convening all of the the payers in the state um, healthcare providers, doctors, midwives, Planned Parenthood, social service agencies, and really looking at how we're spending the money now, looking at the maternity program now, and saying, um, how can you realign the incentives, and how can we do a better job with the money we have? And so we're developing an episode of care that Matt mentioned this morning. We're looking at what other state Medicaid um, payers have done. We looked at Tennessee, Arkansas, Ohio. Uh, we also looked at a national organization called The LAN, which has payers across the country involved in it. And we are, we have everyone around the table and we're trying to design one program that the state would participate in along with the five managed care organizations and all of the, the hospital systems that um, are you know, delivering most of the births um, and the healthcare providers and and community um, agencies um, to use data to have transparency to let physicians um, and nurses and hospital executives really understand how they stack up compared to their direct peers. And there is significant variation within a hospital and within a, you know, a mile of, you know, hospitals within a mile of one another. Um, and I, I know that all the panelists can talk about the magic of transparency. And when you actually show people, you know, how they stack up, how behavior changes, but we're looking at that. And then we're looking at uh, payments and the, and, and what the, you know, changing the, the reimbursement system does. So I, that, I think, is really the only answer. We're not going to get more money. We're just not in a, an age of larger budgets. It's really about better spending the money that we already have, which might actually save money. I mean, we think it will, but we'll see. It's, uh, you, you talk about the comparisons. It's funny. I remember somebody saying that they had had a lot of success with posting certain outcomes. I think it was surgical outcomes or something because doctors being as competitive as they are were eager to see how they bested, you know, the others in the practice or whatever it was. I thought that was kind of funny. But. I can speak to that a little bit. Yeah. We um, have put a lot of work around our C-section rate and 
um, our low risk C-section rate a few years back was close to 30, it was 35%. Um, with the, she told you the, the goal was 23.9. So after a lot of work, a lot of initiatives, um, protocol driven um, initiatives and transparency, that's, that was a huge part as well as financial incentives. But um, showing docs where they rank, just even in the department, was a huge motivator for doctors and putting it up publicly, putting it up at our department meetings, um, and, and certainly making it publicly available is, is a huge motivator for physicians. But we were able to drive the rate. We're consistently now at our largest hospital in the low 20s. So just by a few changes and really getting engagement from the docs between transparency and aligning financial incentives um, really made a huge difference. Um, I was thinking, as you mentioned, that there was, um, there was a story earlier this year. Um, I can't remember who did it first, but I think it was on, it was an NPR piece, but it was about a woman who died, I don't know if it was at Monmouth, but it was a really, and it, I mean, it was just the most heart-wrenching story. Um, and there were questions about the care, and, and we're not going to get into that here, but my point was the story was all about how here was an essentially healthy woman giving birth in, you know, New Jersey, a state with incredible healthcare resources, and how did so many things go wrong where she ended up dying? Um, and I thought it was such a shock to me to even realize that that was possible. Um, I'm just wondering what the reaction, I mean, I'm sure you <clears throat> saw the story, I'm wondering what the reaction was in the community that you work in. How do you, when that comes out to the public, something like that? There was that. quite a reaction. Yeah. Not only locally, but statewide. Yeah. And we talked earlier about maternal mortality rates, and New Jersey's is actually on the higher side. And the reality is when we talk to disparities is that in the United States, black women are two to three times more likely to die during pregnancy. So their maternal mortality rate is even higher. I think one of the things as horrific as that story was, mm -hmm. it is the reality and it does happen in New Jersey. The New Jersey has been very proactive though and since 1941, I believe, there's been maternal mortality review team within New Jersey to look at each individual death. And we today now look at every woman who has died within one year of a pregnancy event, whether that culminated in an actual birth of a child or if it was a miscarriage. So any type of pregnancy event, we review these cases just to see what uh, what the issues are, and there was talk earlier about looking at um, different services and what types of changes that can be made in systems that can address that. Because of that, we have a statewide perinatal collaborative review team that is now initiating and has for some time a number of patient safety initiatives to decrease not only maternal mortality but morbidity. So some of the things that Suzanne talked about earlier as far as what are those chronic conditions that we're seeing more and more now in women who are pregnant, we can actually reduce the uh, poor outcome for both mom and baby. But that particular project, the collaborative, actually initiated a program a few years back to decrease C-section rates. And Mammoth was one of the hospitals that actually spearheaded that particular project for us and served as a model so that other hospitals statewide could do just 
what was described earlier. And I don't know if you want. Yeah, I was going to say, tell us how how does that work for the clinical program? I mean, when you when you start instituting those models and and you know looking to move move the curve a little, what's how does so reducing cesarean section rates is probably the hardest needle in OB to move. Why is that? Uh, because it doesn't happen quickly, and you, it's actually changing the culture of the hospital. So, uh, you know, I often say that cesarean sections are not a problem. They're the result of a problem. So what you have to do, and what we did at Monmouth, um, back in 1994, 1995, our rate was 33%. And we recognized back then that that was a problem. And we were just saying the other day, for many, many years, um, OB kind of skated under the radar of benchmarks and metrics, Joint Commission, everything. Um, they kind of stayed away from OB, and now it's become the focus of everything with cesarean section rates being on the top. So back then, we realized we had a problem, and we had to change what was going what was going on in our hospital. And it took a lot of boots on the ground commitment, um, not just within the department, but from our administration, because oftentimes it's that um, culture where if Mom says, no, let's go ask dad. So in a hospital, it's if the OB chair and the nursing director says, no, I'm going to go to the CEO and say, well, I'm going to take my business elsewhere. We were lucky that our CEO said, well, here's the door, because we don't want that kind of quality in our hospital. So we were fortunate there. So that helped. It was a lot of digging into the data. As I said, cesarean sections are a result. You have to figure out what your problem is and what the problem is for Mammoth may be different than what it is at Virtua or any of the other hospitals in my system, the RWJ Barnabas Health System, um, because we have a huge variation in rates within our own system, which we're working on, I promise. So um, the other thing um, our chair did was he collected individual data on each of our physicians. And for those physicians that were the outliers, he had that conversation with them. He pulled them aside and he said, Here's where you sit. Here's where all your peers are sitting. How are you going to fix this? It's not, are you going to fix it? It's, how are you going to fix it? Um, initially, there was a lot of pushback, but then everybody started to realize that this was where healthcare was going. Then, in about 2009, we instituted a laborist program. And this is probably one of, next to data transparency, this was probably the other huge factor that brought our cesarean section rate down. We instituted a laborist program where there's a board-certified physician, which is one of our own docs, that stays in the hospital 24-7. And this doc provides support to the other docs that have patients there. So not only if the doc is in his office, but if the doc is struggling um, clinically with a case. Um, and what I have found, especially in the most recent years, is it, um, with our newer docs that are coming out of residency and going into private practice, it gives them that comfort level to push the envelope a little bit further than they would if they didn't have that person with, you know, decades of experience sitting there um, to help them or bail them out of a situation. And I can um, tell you a story. We had a, it was September last year and we had a young um, new attending who had a patient come in. It was her seventh baby and she was about seven centimeters dilated and breech. And she happened um, 
to call for a cesarean section so the staff's getting the patient ready. I walked out to the nurse's station to see what was going on, and they said, oh, she's going to section the patient in room four. And I said, for what? And she said, breach. I said, well, what number of baby is it for this patient? It's her seventh baby. I'm like, this is crazy. Our laborist, um, who had years of experience, and early in my career, I probably did dozens of breach deliveries with him, um, I called him to come out, and he pulled the young attending aside, and he said, listen, let's take her into the operating room, but we're going to deliver this patient breach, and I'm going to show you how. And that's what we did. We took her to the back. He assisted her. It was a beautiful breach delivery. But had that safety net not been there, that patient would have gotten a cesarean section unnecessarily. And that's, and that's part of the problem in New Jersey is we're doing a lot of these unnecessary cesarean sections. That's not to say that there isn't a time and a place for a cesarean section. They are warranted in some conditions, but not all. I'm sorry. To, I'm just curious if that part of that story reflects the fact that you have someone who is younger who comes in at a time when cesareans are high and frequently used and someone who comes from a different period where it was outside the norm. Is that part of what you're seeing there? It's just someone who's trained in today would think that's, you know, you go straight to the C section. There's definitely in OB experience differences. Yeah. And we just spoke about it the other day. Um, when I first started my career, all doctors used forceps for delivery. Um, and now it's not as it's not seen as often in every hospital. You still have some hospitals. Um, Nicole's hospital um, is, they teach their residents how to do it. They all practice in it. Whereas at Monmouth, I only have a few docs left that are doing forceps deliveries and they're teaching their residents, our residents, how to do it, but it's few and far between. You know, with the advent of the vacuum to assist in deliveries, it was a much easier method and a lot of the docs in that generation adopted that over forceps. Um, before we move on to more solutions though, uh, someone raised an interesting point here and, and talk about disparities. Do, what kind of programs do we have in New Jersey, um, particularly prenatal, prenatal care for undocumented women? I, and I don't know if that's something, yeah, Colleen or, or Robin, that you've experienced, and, and how do we deal with that, and how is it working? Yeah, great question. Um, I would say that um, without really having the numbers, uh, we serve many, many undocumented. And um, through many of these programs, they are, um, you know, they're, they're welcomed into our programs. Uh, we do not ask for, uh, we're not checking that. When we, and then they enroll for Medicaid for that time period for pregnancy and delivery, that's, you know, we'll move that. And then after their baby um, is born here as an American citizen, they will be signed up and, and we enroll them. So we do a lot of working with the undocumented population. And uh, it's a population that really, you know, um, just has so much potential here, especially when you're working with a new mom with a baby and um, just trying to get her life together where she's going. There's just a lot of opportunities. So that is a population that we serve. And we do uh, our community health workers. We have a public health nurse. There's many other programs that we, that we do that we are more than open to serving the undocumented. Nicole, I was, um, was going to ask you about rural um, reaching women with, uh, in, in rural areas. Um, do you have a specific strategy for, for rural care or is there something you do different down in, in the virtual system that, that we could learn from? 
Yeah, I probably can't speak to that directly. Our area is really, even though we're South Jersey, it's really not that rural I where I am. Um, Al's walking in the street, I understand. But um, we, do try to, we, try, we do try to put practices. We're, we're trying to expand further into the South Jersey region, but there are other health systems there that could probably speak to that better. We don't have a whole lot of rural outreach. Um, we have more of a Camden outreach than anything. Might answer the question right there. Um, what about uh, how often are, are both parents brought into the equation? And, and I, by both parents, I think we're talking about um, fathers in this particular case. Um, you know, how, how do you bring the fathers in? And, and do programs focus on that? Um, we have, uh, there's probably, I, I'd say, like the percentage is about 87% of single moms that are enrolled in the home visitation programs, but the, um, but the dads, the partners, are involved in maybe 50% of those. So even though they're not a married couple, they are involved in those. And we, we've, you know, traditionally always focused on the mom, and, um, but we are pushing in the last three, four years much more for inclusiveness in the father. I think, uh, um, you know, we started with a mom because she was the one that was really most socially isolated. Uh, the dads were um, providing um, for that family and unit, but the mom was the one that we, so, you know, socialized. But we do a lot of different interesting things with the dads that, you know, in learning about child. And, uh, you know, a focus of ours is definitely child abuse and neglect prevention of. So, you know, you really want that, that dad in there, that partner in there, that uncle in there, the grandfather. And, uh, you know, that whole entire family unit is important to all work with. And the dads are, you know, they're, they're fun and interesting uh, <laughs> with their questions, especially on birth control. And just some of the lack of knowledge is just amazing um, that, um, you know, we also did an exercise that, you know, who's your dream man? What kind of qualities and characteristics? And, you know, we build a lot on relationships because that's, that's really where you really want to hit upon as you're dealing. Um, I'm curious, we, we talk a lot this morning, and in, in general, we keep touching on it here too, about um, preventative care. Um, and some of the maternal, maternal indicators, the maternal health indicators that the state is obviously tracking have to do with uh, you know, reducing alcohol use and smoking and things like that. Um, how do you, is, is that standardized statewide? I mean, other than those benchmarks, is there a, are, are there, how standard is it that sort of system of preventative care for women who are going to have birth, pregnant women? What we're finding now more and more uh, through grants that we receive and RFAs that are out there, there's a huge focus on uh, preconception health or interconception health. So prior to pregnancy or in between pregnancies. So whether the education occurs during a woman's pregnancy to help to guide her, what would be the best opportunity for her? Again. Uh, so that we want to assure that pregnancies are spaced appropriately. We know that nationally in New Jersey is no different. Over 50% of all pregnancies are unplanned. So the better a woman and her partner is in being healthy and well and ready to have a pregnancy occur, the better the chances for a positive birth outcome. 
So there's not anything standardized, but what I would say is that many of the programs now that we're funded for and much of the work that we do from an education standpoint focuses on preconception and interconception health. We even have a program that's specific for teens and young adults that looks to preconception health and educating them so they in turn can be peer educators for others, understanding the importance of wellness prior to pregnancy to hopefully prevent some of the things that we're talking about. I think some of the struggles that we see as healthcare providers is the patients, um, that gap in care from when they're finished with one pregnancy going into another, where um, especially in the Medicaid population, getting them to a healthcare provider if they've had a complication of their pregnancy, whether it was diabetes, hypertension, so that when they come into another pregnancy, we're not behind the eight ball. And I, and I think that's where you're going with that, but um, I'm not sure that we're where we need to be because I know um, at Mammoth we see that often. So if somebody, um, going back to the obesity example, if they gained a little bit too much weight in their first pregnancy, they got pregnant quicker than what we would like to see. So now they're starting with that pregnancy weight they may not have lost um, and putting on more weight. So that's giving them a risk factor. They may have had preeclampsia or hypertension in their pregnancy that was never followed up on um, once their pregnancy was completed. And now they're coming in and starting out with hypertension because maybe she's an undiagnosed hypertensive. Um, maybe she developed gestational diabetes in the pregnancy and it never resolved after, as most do. So now we have a diabetes problem. So I think we could do a much better job in navigating these patients to where they need to go for the year or two in between pregnancies and helping them understand why they need to have that primary care um, in between pregnancies. If I could add one more thing, which I think is of particular interest when we're talking the Medicaid population, and that is contraception and the reimbursement of contraception, as well as the availability of contraception, either prior to pregnancy, after delivery, and then during that interconception period. Because that's always, it's been an issue, it continues to be an issue, and it's very challenging. The access to it, or the, the does Medicaid not pay for birth control? Access to and reimbursement for, because some of the modalities that they choose are more costly than others, which would put a cost onto the provider to have it available for them prior to them leaving their office. So. Um, yeah, I was wondering about the cost involved um, and how Medicaid. I mean, is, does, is, what the flexibility is, for example, in paying for this, um, this interim care and things, if, if that is available. And are there ways that you can use um, essentially value-based care models is, to incentivize better, better care here? Is that, is that happening anywhere that, that anybody knows of? So I mean, Part of this goes to the problem of the, the flow of the money and the eligibility issues that we talked to, talked about earlier this morning um, and the, the contraceptive issue, contraceptives, 
Um, we are actually also working with um, a group of healthcare providers along with Planned Parenthood and Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield looking at um, a model for LARC or, or long-acting reproductive reversible contraceptives thank you sorry but um, and really reimbursing not just for the contraceptive itself but also for the counseling and discussion with the mom about really what her future birth control wishes are so that would be a payment change but something that we think would be important um, but going back to your question um, really looking at all of these models, um, whether it's a patient-centered medical home or whether it's something that uh, Earhart mentioned, like taking global risk for a community or a population. I mean, all of these things would, would uh, line the incentives up better for the providers at least. But that is what the managed care organizations um, are paid for. I mean, they're, they're supposed to be coordinating care, and, and he mentioned he has 300 people out in the community. I know a lot of the other plans do too, um, the, but that's that that's what they're paid for, and we would like to see the, the bonuses and performance measures put into the contract very clearly so that we are, you know, their performance payments are tied to outcomes and the, of all the things that we're talking about today. Ken, um you should keep the mic. Can you use the financial incentives uh, for hospitals with regards to C-section? Um, I know that, I think we've talked about this a little bit. Um, but that's obviously a very expensive practice. And Sure, so it, I mean essentially that's being done. So in the rates for this year, uh, Medicaid looked at the rates that they're paying the plans and they looked at the C-section rates and they said, C-section rates are too high. We know you, managed care organizations, are going to do a better job, so we're going to cut your rates by a couple percentage points, and you'll figure out how to do it. <laughs> um, that's, one, that's one way. Um, I, I, I actually like the way that we're going through a little bit better in terms of bringing everybody together and, and designing a model that um, seems to be working in hospitals, you know, by hospitals and working for providers and patients. Um, I think that uh, it, 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 it's a little more nuanced, but, 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 but I think that that, that is one mechanism. Um, a couple other things that other states have done real quickly. Um, uh, some states, uh, South Carolina, Texas, and one or two others, um, stopped paying hospitals for early elective deliveries. So deliveries before 39 weeks where there was no medical reason to do so and it effectively eliminated them. Um, Arkansas just did something. Oh, it mandated transparency around C-section rates and has seen their C-section rates gone down. So it doesn't necessarily have to be connected to the payment system, just, just mandated reporting um, seems to also be working to some extent. Uh, most of the hospitals in New Jersey voluntarily report to LeapFrog of their on their uh, c-section rates their episiotomy rates and their early elective delivery rates um, both of the hospitals up here do report to leapfrog um, and the hospitals within their systems have actually won top hospital awards from leapfrog both of them um, but unfortunately there's some hospitals in the state that still don't report to leapfrog and there's 
one in particular that you recently reported on that used to report to LeapFrog and they were doing so poorly that they no longer report to LeapFrog. So, one way to deal um, with the problem, <laughs> just not report it, yeah. Because we talk a lot about C-sections, and I realize a lot of people aren't clinical or aren't OBGYN anyway. Um, I, I'm not sure we were clear on why C-sections matter so much. And we have a question here about what, what about a woman who, want, who requests C-sections? So, so tell us a little bit about that and how they sometimes come into, because the question is, you know, what about someone who wants a C-section in order to keep a job schedule? Um, and yeah, I mean, that's lack of education, and that's where we fail. You know, we have to really explain to patients. And I feel like our college, ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, really did us a disservice by coming out, I forget which year, but um, and said that basically the risk was equal between a C-section and a vaginal delivery. And that kind of gave a blanket permission to do C-section whenever you wanted to. Um, what we found out years later as a result, and then the climbing number of C-sections, was the number of complications and your your risks your risk of mortality is double with repetitive C-sections and it is with vaginal deliveries and not to mention all the other complications infections sepsis um, blood clots pulmonary embolus there's just you know hemorrhage I'm sorry I almost missed <laughs> one of the leading causes of mortality mortality is hemorrhage and um, it's definitely higher with C-sections and repetitive C-sections then lead to placental problems, which can lead to hysterectomy at the time of C-section. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a huge factor that wasn't calculated in when that initial commentary and recommendation about it being equal was made, and now we're left with the result. And that comment still hasn't been reversed, um, so there's still work to be done there. But um, women that come in and ask for a C-section, I just think, need to know what they're choosing. You know, we used to be able to say, well, if you're only going to have a couple births, it's okay, your risk is low. But I think when you actually spell out all the information to them and really what they're risking and just even recovery time and the amount of time that you're taking out of work and the amount of time you're taking away from your child and possibly not being able to bond in the same way and all the implications of choosing a C-section, if we really explain that to patients, I think... And, and if the attitude, again, the culture and just our culture at large changes in terms of how they approach C-section, you'll, you'll see those requests go down. We're working at Virtua at um, having an education form specifically around elective cesarean section and really spelling out what those risks are in real data, you know, clear ways. It strikes me as we're talking about this, um, I can't for some reason not think of this story that Sue Livio um, from NJ.com did about the, um, the horrible situation of the woman who had not one, not two, but three post-sleeping deaths. Um, and it, it occurs to me that so much, and there's, there's great, all these wonderful tools in the story that, that kind of explore that question and that debate. Um, and it's funny, because when you look at the clinical side, there's sort of a unanimous agreement that this is not a really good, this is a bad option. Um, but then there is this, this contingent that clearly says, you know, this is, it's a personal choice question. And I just wonder, I wonder if there's any other area in healthcare, and maybe I'm just not thinking of it, but where you come up against this personal choice thing so much. Because you are, in a, in a way, you're telling people how to do something that women have done for millions of years on their own in caves, wherever. 
you know, without you. So there's always that sense that we can do this. We've got this. We've done it before. Um, I don't have children. That's not obviously clear by now. Um, so tell me, I, I just, I, it's sort of a thought, but I'm wondering if, if you have any sort of thoughts on how that, how, how your job, how that works in your job. I think with ours, um, you, you know, you touched on a huge issue because safe sleep and um, getting these um, these deaths from SIDS and and just sudden in, infant death syndrome, it it's hard. It's very difficult, and uh, especially when you're you're talking with a mom, and and part of it is just that education and awareness, and and usually by providing information in in either her language or really kind of relating um, to a 20 or 21 year old why this is so important. Um, it, it just, you struggle within yourself because you know that, and, and the mom may tell you, well, you know, that's how my mom raised me. I had, you know, seven other children and they lived and you look at them and you say they were lucky, she was very lucky. You know, this is what we know, this is what, and we come back to the science of it and, and hopefully that trust and that relationship that you've built, she will give you a, she will give you a chance in, in working out what, what could work. You know, and then you want to try to provide the resource for her. You know, do you have a pack and play? Do you have, you know, is it a crib that you don't have the money for? So all of those types of things you try to think. But I think, you know, sometimes I, I know that we have staff that really very much struggle with the co-sleeping piece. As much as they say, you know, it's, it's a tough thing to be able to get across. I don't know. I guess my only other comment would be culture plays a huge role in maternal child health even more so than in other areas of healthcare. So we're sitting here starting to tick off just more breastfeeding, I was just a huge say. issue. Uh, the uh, whether or not to immunize my child, another one. So we probably could think of a number of them, but culture is very much embedded into all that we do and the decisions women and families make in regard to maternal child health and the care they receive the choices they make, just early prenatal care, we talked earlier, that if I've had seven other babies, do I really need to go to the doctor when I'm two months pregnant? I know what's going to happen. Or maybe in my country, we don't go to the doctor unless there's something wrong. So therefore, I'll just take care of my pregnancy or my mother will provide that. And that's prior to delivery. At delivery, there are all sorts of cultural beliefs, rituals, as well as postpartum. So there's a number of different things that influence. Can you tell us a little bit about the program? Um, I'm thinking the name SMART. Strong Start. Strong Start, Strong Start. sorry, Strong Start. Um, but I know it's part of a bigger program. And um, I think this is where we met at the event that um, when Linda did the, the 2.0 uh, rollout. Um, I know some of you were there. and. Um, I remember talking to some of the moms, and I remember the adorable baby um, that visited. Um, but they were really, they really had a lot of good things to say about the program. Um, and it was interesting to hear it from them. But, but tell us a little bit about how that works and, and what you've seen. Well, Strong Start is actually, it was a federally funded, through the Centers of Medicaid and Medicare, a pilot project to look at three different methods to provide prenatal care. We were fortunate enough to be funded to pilot centering pregnancy or group prenatal care in New Jersey. There were a number of programs that, or hospitals and other sites that had already implemented uh, group prenatal care and our hope was to expand that. The key here was we were only allowed to uh, have women who were Medicaid eligible or receiving Medicaid uh, 
in the program. You asked earlier, what about our other populations and immigrant populations being one? So we did include anyone that actually was interested in group prenatal care. It's an evidence-based program that has shown positive birth outcomes. Women in groups of eight to 10 get together, are put together in an actual group. They're of similar gestational age at the time, and then they are followed as a group throughout the remainder of their pregnancy. They have the same number of visits as you would in traditional prenatal care. However, in this case, all of the women meet together discuss, have a facilitated discussion. There is a healthcare provider who does do an, an initial assessment at the beginning of each visit. It's usually done as well in a group setting in a spot. It's a one room and they actually learn self-care skills, height, weight, blood pressure, checking their urine, and such, so there is a learning component, not only for the information related to pregnancy, but also self-care and empowerment of their taking care of their own health care. What we found in this group is that birth outcomes are vastly improved, that the issue of disparities has dramatically decreased. In our group, we had over 1,200 women enroll at the time the project ended, which was earlier this year, there were over 800, nearly 900 women who had completed the program. And these were the Medicaid women. There were additional women that we could not include in this data piece. Of them, the preterm birth rate for black women was reduced by 50% compared to Medicaid women in New Jersey um, with this, at the same. So, so our preterm birth rate was decreased by 50%. Low birth weight for black women was decreased by 30%. When we looked at white women, we did not see as dramatic a drop. However, Hispanic women saw similar, not quite as dramatic, a decrease in poor birth outcomes. This was is not any different than when we compare these birth outcomes to women in other centering groups throughout the country. And there have been a number of studies now that has seen a similar drop in poor birth outcome simply related to this mode of prenatal care. What's more interesting, when we talked earlier and Suzanne described some of the comorbidities, the chronic conditions that are associated with pregnancy, the women that were part of our strong start were actually women more at risk. They were high risk. They would traditionally have had a higher risk for all of these issues. So whereas our normal preterm birth weight in New Jersey is about 12.5%, this group, regardless of whether what type of prenatal care just coming in, they would be at higher risk or preterm birth rate, but in fact, they were lowered by this 50%. So we really feel strongly. Now, you mentioned about the women themselves. There was really no magic bullet that is provided to these women. They, other than their visits are with a group of like-minded people going through the same thing as they are. 
and the support that they received, not only from their peers, but also from the staff, these visits that they had lasted uh, anywhere between 90 and 120 minutes. So it's not they go into the doctor, they get their vital signs done, their weight done. How do you feel? I feel okay, I've got a pain here. There's a discussion then that ensues for another hour to an hour and a half, a usually a refreshment. So there's much more of a social aspect. Is that the magic uh, bullet? I don't know. I don't know. But m what we're finding is, is that it is working. We had it in seven sites in New Jersey. Five of them, excuse me, four of them were th in hospital clinics. Three were in federally qualified health centers. Newark, New Brunswick, Neptune, so they were from around the state. And again, they were with our women that we know are most at risk for poor birth outcome. And the woman that I met, I, I remember her very clearly describing the, the scenario that I think I asked her how it helped her, and, and she was saying that she was, you know, soon after she gave birth and she was at home, and um, I think her entire family came over to see the baby at once, you know, and it was a big family, and, and I think her partner's family came too or something. So there was, all of a sudden she had 40 people in her house or something, and she didn't really want to deal with 40 people, and, and she, I remember she said she texted some of the other women in the group, and they kind of helped her with the strategy to politely tell everybody, you know, I'm going over here to watch television right. by myself. It's great, <laughs> you know, help yourself to the food in the kitchen or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. they, they, were, they gave her an out. And it was, it was clear to me that they, they had this bond that they had created, um, which, you know, might have traditionally in the past come from people that they knew through family or, mm -hmm. you know, friends or work or whatever. But this was a, a, a very concrete connection that they had. It was, Impressive. And that's really what we've seen. In addition to low birth weight and uh, preterm birth, C-section rates were also decreased and breastfeeding rates had dramatically increased as well in this population. One of the sites, they, have, they found that there was such a bond for the women, they've actually continued and are now doing a group, a centering group, if you will, centering is the model that we used, but a centering group for pediatric care. And part of that was because they did not want to leave this group of women. And again, is it the decreased stress that they feel because of the supports that they have? Maybe. But it is a, it's a dramatic shift and change in a way to give prenatal care. And I just want to add one comment. When you think about the U.S. in um, really kind of scoring so, so low with maternity care, um, you know, that's really the problem. There are many countries that get this, that they keep the, the pregnancy and birth about the woman, and they also provide supportive services. We make it a little bit too medical in the United States, and I think that from our women that we serve, it's really just having that, that best friend, that other person that is coaching you along the way, and we really should get back to that. Um, speaking of the medical, we can't leave it. This is, this is a great question. Um, just brings me back. 10, 12 years ago, there were doctors um, marching in the streets. Remember the issue? It was malpractice, medical malpractice. And um, of course, who was the, the biggest uh, sort of target on their back at that point was obese. Um, and I'm wondering if medical malpractice still plays a big issue in, in 
this work that you do? I'm, I'm looking at Nicole here, but I don't, I don't, know, I don't know how much do you pay? No, um, <laughs> no but I mean, how, where are we now with, with malpractice in the state? It's still a huge issue, and I just brought it up the other day, and I always feel like it's a controversial issue to, to, right. to talk about um, at a state level, but um, you know, it drives decision-making too much, and especially in this state, because you know, I was talking with some of my other providers, the stress of the pending litigation and the possibility of this case going to litigation, you know, trumps a lot of the other things that should be making the decision for you when it comes to, to clinical decision-making. And that's, that's a scary thing to be at, you know? I mean, you don't want to be choosing whether or not to do a C-section on somebody or whether or not to, how to deliver somebody, when to deliver somebody based on the possibility of being sued. And, and the reality is that's still too much of a factor. And we do need to do something to control that because as we're trying to push for choosing the right decisions for the right reasons, we have to have our doctor's backs. You know, we have to say, we're gonna support you in this, we're gonna, we're gonna help you through this so that you can make the right decision. I was thinking of the story you were talking about the breech birth um, and the, the, the more experienced laborist coming in. And, and, but my sense is if you're perhaps the father of that child-to-be, and you're here, that you know, and you're you're seeing the clinicians sort of taking their time, and you know that you might start to get amped up. And I'm wondering if the, how how that kind of potential legal question factors in when when you're making those C-section decisions. And so, so we we've had this conversation many times, and, and one of the things. We got two backups in five minutes. So. <laughs> um, so. Okay, is that good? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So we often talk about this. Is um, one of the things that we have found that kind of escalates the situation is what's going on at the bedside, and if your nurse is escalating because. At Monmouth, we've also looked at nursing cesarean section rates, which is too lengthy of a conversation to get into right now. Um, but if your nurse is, escal is escalating and the patient's escalating and the father of the baby's escalating, it's very hard for a physician to come in and de-escalate that situation um, when the patient thinks that the best avenue for her baby is a cesarean section. It's really hard for them to talk that patient back down. And then, in the event there is a bad outcome, then you know the recourse is, why didn't you do a cesarean section? Um, so what we've tried to foster at Monmouth is everybody staying calm at the bedside and any of those kind of discussions happen outside the room. We're gonna keep mom and, and dad calm and we'll have that conversation outside of the room. So I think that plays a big role in it. Any other questions? We, uh, we're, we're almost done here. Any other last minute thoughts from our panelists while we have all these brilliant minds? One, one thing about the centering, like I feel that that speaks to what I was trying to say about relating to the patient where they are, you know, because the centering really allows them to bring it into their world and seeing how other people living the same life that they are, it's impacting them and, and really get it on that level. So I think. What's the level of diversity among providers? Not enough. Okay. Not enough. And, um, you know, especially female, female um, minority providers is, is very low. Do you, 
we're going to, we, we did, uh, Dr. Kemi Ali was one of the people we had talked about inviting, but she was unavailable. But she's a pediatrician and a minority. <laughs> and she's worked very hard in her community in Trenton and has made some significant changes, positive changes in that way. I will tag on to what you just said and centering, I think we really do need to look at other models. And in this particular case for Medicaid, this type of model, a group prenatal care, which is low cost and provides such significant positive outcomes, not only birth outcomes for the baby, obviously, but for mom, but long-term. We talked a little bit earlier about long-term issues in childhood and the home visiting. We talked a little bit about social determinants of health that we may just need to look at that tweak in how we package this to be able to get a better um, outcome for all of our moms. That's actually where I was going with my last comment was, I think as providers, um, we have to get a little bit more creative of how we bring care to mom. Um, I think a lot of times, um, especially our patients that don't have a lot of resources, want to get care, um, but they just don't know how to access it. And um, even on the commercial side, I think there's some women that are trying to balance so many things that putting they make themselves the least priority even when they're pregnant. Um, so I think as healthcare moves forward and finances go backwards, um, we need to get a little bit more creative with how we're able to deliver quality care um, that's fiscally responsible. Just one more story that we were talking about opioid and um, pregnant moms, and I just wanted to say that you know we did serve a mom in Ocean County and have served a couple of moms. This particular mom was addicted to drugs and was uh, after the first visit with the nurse, she ended up being incarcerated. And um, our nurse ended up going to the jail to be able to provide services, visited with her there for three months while she was incarcerated, came back to the home when the baby was placed with her parents and herself, ended up following through with this baby. And this mom is now, uh, she's, she's paying attention to her parole and, and really just getting to where, but you know, if, these supportive services can can reach. I mean, we're reaching moms who who really do have a lot of issues out there, and we can be that support. I just want to add to the the issue about the just sort of that communal touch and the importance of cultural sensitivity. What we didn't touch on, but I think it's another opportunity, is just technology in oh, terms yeah. of how that can help with access too, so that we can make that map look a little more green and green and blue instead of orange. And so hopefully we'll, hopefully we'll get there. Yeah, because it seems like almost at this point, regardless of cultural background, pretty much everybody has a cell phone in their pocket these days. So. Um, that is a great place to end. Thank you so much to our panelists. Um, and of course to our sponsors, Aetna, Horizon, United Healthcare, Robert Wood Johnson Barnabas, and the Quality Institute. Thank you very much, everybody. Um, certainly, certainly the surveys. Um, please uh, fill those out. Those are very helpful. We've been looking at them already, and there's a lot of really good constructive stuff. I want to thank Lilo, especially before uh, she gets away from us. Um, 
It is, it is for those of you who moderate panels, it's all, uh, doing one is a lot of work, doing two is really a lot of work. So she deserves uh, a tremendous amount of credit. And um, Lilo, uh, I think she knows this, will be writing a story off of this event. Um, not for tomorrow, probably, right? No. <laughs> um, we will also, uh, we have uh, did audio tape of this and we'll be releasing podcasts of, of um, on the site of uh, segments uh, of the event. And also, I don't know if it'll be part of Lilo's story, but those of you who want um, the slides from Heather Howard's, a couple of people asked about that. Uh, she said she's happy to share those. I guess we can link them off of your story, but um, certainly anybody who wants them even sooner than that, jmooney at njspotlight.com. Um, and and uh, I'm happy to, we'll get hold of them and I'm happy to share them with you as well. So thank you all very much for coming. Uh, I really appreciate it and it's been a long day and, and safe travels. For more information on NJ Spotlight and its programs, visit njspotlight.com. For everyone at NJ Spotlight, this is Steve Lubetkin. Thanks for listening and take good care.